HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Please take a moment to like the show on iTunes if you, in fact, like it. And please reach out to me if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on social media at thefoodballer. Today is episode number 71 of Feast Your Ears, and joining me today in the studio, I have Jim Costanzo, who's an artist, activist, and teacher. Jim teaches at Pratt uh, and has been working for the last few decades uh, to p- what I would describe as to pose questions about the government and its relationship to the people and the so-called, quote, truths we hold to be self-evident. I hope, Jim, that's a, an accurate description. Uh, in 2008, he founded the Aaron Burr Society to celebrate the ideals of the winner of the famous 1804 duel that left Alexander Hamilton dead and effectively ended Burr's political career. Thank you, Jim, for coming on the show today. Uh, can you introduce yourself to the listeners and say a little bit about who you are and what you teach? Well, I teach a number of different classes. Uh, several of them have to do with technology, video, photography, and I also teach an installation class uh, that's on a graduate level, and I'm working to create a class for, about collaboration. And I also have one class on uh, socially engaged media, where students create an identity across different platforms and tell narrative stories. So they have to create visual and some some kind of description of what they're doing. Hmm. It's it's uh, it's it's very. Uh I guess, uh, present to our times about being these, the idea of identity across different platforms. And it's something I think a lot about, uh, even with this show, right? Do I have a different identity as me or is the show me or am I the show or sort of how those things play together? Well, the idea of identity has shifted so radically now and 
even in the, the 90s and the late 80s, before the inter- quote-unquote internet happened. Uh, remember, banks were using the internet or intranet sure. way before that. And yep. It was perfected. So, But the idea of what an identity is, we went through what they would call identity politics, which I hate that name. I hate feminist poli- or art. You know, so all of that, people are have always been trying to assert who they are, figure this out. This goes back forever, I think. But the idea of where we are now and what identity means, what uh, our surveillance systems are, you know, I did not want to be on social media. I did not want to be on Facebook or Google. And uh, in 2003, I was invited to this uh, new media conference called Point O Two, and it was at the Museum of Contemporary Art. And I literally sat between an FBI agent and someone from the ACLU talking about surveillance. Right. And um, it was pretty insane. <laughs> it was it was very interesting. But the idea was that you know i didn't i knew that these were open sources yep. i mean everyone did i mean if edward snowden was great what he did was so important but if you were involved in technology you already knew this right so um the idea of of how this works is just kind of crazy but the thing was i couldn't be part of the globalization movement or occupy wall street without having google and facebook right it's such an right. irony right right so the 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 involvement in that and the ability for your data to be shared and tracked was necessary for you to be connected to those people and to be involved in that. It's, it's interesting. I, I remember very much the the first time uh, that that I was really involved in in something that was using that social media in that way. I was a little bit involved in Occupy, but not in any of the organizing of it. But was in the recovery from Hurricane Sandy, where there were Facebook groups and there were you know information was being shared by the minute through these channels, and the, the technological aspect of it was amazing. But when you look at the darker aspect of it, it's a little bit scary as well, right? But but another aspect of it was that, I mean, it was so part of what Homeland Security, FBI, CIA, and NSA, they all were plugged into it. Sure. So they knew everything we were doing, so they didn't have to <laughs> spend, send uh, spies into the group. They did right. that anyway. But, sure, sure, sure. So it was like, okay, so they know what we're doing anyway. We're, we're, we're not promoting anything that's illegal right. and we're nonviolent. Right. So right. there was a flip side to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, in, in your own art, um, certainly you've, you've created pieces that exist in, in the public. Um, you had a, you did some billboard pieces, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in, yes. in New Jersey. Um, can you speak a little bit about, about those and where those came from? Right. That was, uh, leading up to the war in Iraq uh, right after the election, a group – I've been very active for a long time with a group called Repo History in the 90s. And then at the election, a f- group of artist friends and I started doing demonstrations in New York and then Washington against the inauguration. And then right after 9-11, within two weeks of 9-11, we, that same group and others got together and we created something, Our Grief is Not a Cry for War. And we – did performances in uh, Union Square, Times Square, and other places because we knew it was coming. I mean, right. And we wanted to express our our resistance. Yeah. And then the billboards were a continuation of that. And they, they were based on ideas, you know, one 
American equals one Arab equals one Jew kind of thing, and the idea of peace, freedom, and justice were the three main headlines. And then I just grabbed images off of uh, both the Internet and off of uh, the TV set. And I, um, you know, using Photoshop, I took these fuzzy little things and made them huge and played with them so that they were still recognizable. But, of course, the text was the main thing. Right. And I also did a video um, that was called the Scream 21st Century Edition, where I'm screaming for three minutes in front of uh, a blue screen with all the images of war and Bush and Congress. So there was a, multiple aspects of that. Um, and do you have do you have any future public art planned currently? I mean, we can we can sort of go through. You know, we obviously now is a very different time, but it also has a lot of similarities to, to what was happening after September 11th in terms of um, you know fear mongering in this country for people from the Arab world. And so, do you have any other any public art planned coming up? Well, when I launched the Aaron Burr Society, that was a public art. I sort of sure. performing on Wall Street. Um, three years later, Occupy happened, and you know I worked my way through that. It was amazing. It was absolutely fantastic. I was not an organizer of Occupy. I was there from the beginning, and I helped organize with different groups that came out of Occupy. Um, but I'm continuing the Aaron Burr Society, and I distill whiskey. Yep. Uh, at different places and uh, a historical museum, art history museum at the Brooklyn Kitchen. And that was the old stone house in Brooklyn, by the yep. way. Yep. And uh, I can, I'm going to continue to do that. And I have a couple other ideas um, that will be happening probably in the fall. I'm uh, hoping to launch auditions for the President of the United States. That's and we idea. have uh, a platform that is hopefully as radical as yeah. anything so out let, there. So let's talk about the Aaron Burr Society. I mean, let's talk sure. about So the Aaron Burr Society was created in 2008, um, you know, essentially uh, in, in the same sort of, you know, in, in, a, in a time that, you know, at least I, I'm hoping, you know, we will come back to a time where it seems like progressive politics were starting to get into the highest office. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in 2008, we elected Obama. He was inaugurated in 2009 um you know things seem to be pretty good for those of us who i think consider ourselves on the left um and but you so you started the aaron burr society um tell me why and what the what's the mission well when i was with that group group history in the 90s i put up a sign in front of wall street saying the advantages of a free market society and it was totally ironic because in the back of the sign said deregulation and fraud cost every stock market crash and the resulting recession, depression, however you want to describe it, since the 1890s. And based on that, I just saw what was coming with the crash. And I didn't think it would be a total economic international meltdown, which is mind-boggling that they could do that. Uh, But I knew something bad was coming. I published a letter with Harper's, and I was out in the streets in the summer performing before the crash. And, you know, I wasn't the only one by any stretch of the sure. imagination. You, if you read certain economists and certain journals, you, you'll find a lot of people knew that something was happening. The idea that how bad it was, the derivatives. Nobody really kind of knew. You said, oh, yeah, but not really. And that was like, we still don't know the value of the banks today. Right. They're, the, Good the, point. The, the Federal Reserve Bank is holding $3 trillion in bad assets. Today, or last month, so. right? <laughs> uh, right, so, and those bad assets are made up of pieces of things from all. I mean, it's a it's it's a mind-bogglingly yes. complex. Yeah, you just cut it up, send it out, and you don't have any responsibility for anything, which is 
a whole other story. Yeah. But, you know, I read Gore Vidal's book, Burr, and I just loved it. That was like in the 70s or 80s, I guess. I don't know, whenever it came out. And then I thought, okay, here's a guy who shot and killed our first capitalist. That's kind of who was, ironic. Who was the sitting vice president at he, the time? Which... After he killed Hamilton in the duel, he went back to Washington and, and finished his term. He yeah. was not disgraced. Then he ran for governor, and everybody in the world jumped on yeah. him to destroy him. I mean, I think I think it's it's worth understanding all of the. To, to me, what this brings up is there's all of this talk about, um, you, you know, being an originalist and all of these things about what did the founding fathers want. Well, let's remember that in 1804, dueling had just become illegal in New York and New Jersey, and not there, New Jersey only in New York. only in New York, and and there were all of these sort of precautions and I guess sort of backwards ways around the laws that they took in order to have the duel. The guys mm-hmm. who rode them across the Hudson to Weehawken, um, you know, the, the, they were, they needed to be able to say they never saw a pistol. So the pistols were hidden in locked boxes in the bottom of the boat. Mm-hmm. And the guys who were the seconds weren't allowed to watch Nobody was allowed to watch the duel. So, in fact, no one knows who shot first. There is belief that Hamilton shot first and then Burr killed him. But nobody really knows because no one saw it except the two of them. And they took that to their graves. So, I mean, you know, it was a different time. And when you could challenge someone to a duel and that a duel was a way to settle some kind of argument. It wasn't a political argument. It was a personal argument uh, where Hamilton was involved in 12 code of honor things, which are the euphemism for duels. So but not son, shooting. Right? They his don't son all shoot. was also in a duel his in that sh- same location. shot and killed. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Runs Hamble- in the family. Ham- yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Burr was only involved in two duels, one with Hamilton and one with his brother-in-law. So, <laughs> <laughs> but Hamilton was just, would go off. He was like kind of a madman. He couldn't keep his mouth shut. Uh, and he, Madison released information about the Reynolds affair where he had an affair with this woman who and her husband worked for him in the Treasury Department. And the husband and Hamilton were involved in some kind of financial scam. Hamilton said, oh, no, I was having an affair with her and paying the husband, which is <laughs> you can't say that. Even today, you can't say that. And it was like his career was over at that point. Yeah. But he said, I mean, and he was rightfully angry at Madison because Jefferson told Madison to release it. And, Ma- and, he ch- and Madison had to challenge him to a duel or accept the fact that he was a no account, blah, blah, blah. And Burr was Madison's second and got him off because Madison would have died for sure because Hamilton was a soldier. Right. And Madison, I don't know if he ever fired a gun. I assume he did, but he right. wasn't a soldier. Right. So the idea of what was going on there was crazy. But the politics were equally crazy. When you talk about what the Constitution was, it was based on aristocratic minority rule. Only white men who owned property could vote. Yep. And if you owned five slaves, you got three votes. That's kind of mind-boggling when you think about it. So that was the era, you know, and it was like a very rough-and-ready frontier, whatever you want to call it. But during that time, Burr finished, a lot of people think he was an upstart when he tied Jefferson in 1800, but actually he finished fourth in, was it 1796? Hmm. Fourth. And one of the reasons he, he was so low is Jefferson's people, they had to deal because they were running together uh, as Republican, Democratic Republicans as opposed to Federalists. Sure. But Jefferson's people saw uh, Burr getting too close and they dumped their votes against him. And so in 1800, they had a special deal. Jefferson was, according to a legal scholar, 
uh, let's see, creepy, brutal hypocrite. And I can go into detail about that a little bit, but I don't want sure. to. But in, before the election of 1800, Jefferson and Madison came up to the north to do botany studies. And they met with Burr to plan the strategy for the election in 1799. And uh, they cut a deal that, all right, you can't dub phones against me. But also within that year, Burr uh, was a senator, and then he uh, lost his seat to uh, Hamilton's father-in-law. Interestingly <laughs> enough, and he did two things that were based. I based the Amherst Society on. Uh, first, he he brought clean water to New York City during the cholera. No, was it the yellow fever epidemic? Yep. The environmentalist, Company, right? the Manhattan Company. And then, instead of taking profits, he did not take profits. He gave loans to working class citizens, and. On top of that, he passed a law in New York State allowing cooperative ownership of property. Hmm. So that did two things. One, he could give loans to people to buy land, and that would allow those white men to be able to vote. He started the Tammany Hall, the Tammany Society, which is a whole other story. Sure. <laughs> and, but you know, he organized, for the first time on a political level, working-class people. All right, And it was like the basis of what we have now, which is horrible on many levels. Sure. But when you think about it, it was better than what was before. Right. I mean, if you if you look at the scope of history and we talk mm -hmm. about dueling and we talk about the white aristocracy, while that stuff does still exist, we have come a long way. And mm -hmm. I think it is worth noting. And yes. in what, you know, historically, and this could be because of the progression of technology, um, there's a lot of reasons for it, but in a relatively short amount of time, right? In, in, a, little over, in a little over 200 years, historically speaking, we have come a long way mm -hmm. since then. But I think it's important, and I think that people are, are lulled into a sense of stability and complacency. We have a real long way to go to get where we, th where we, where we perceive to be, I think, is sort of the, the way. Well, Abraham Lincoln talked about it. You know, we're striving toward whatever right. a democracy should be. We're not there. Right. But um, people knew, even back then, what, should, what was right. Uh, you know, the French Revolution, you know, both Adams and Jefferson were totally freaked out by the mob or the popular vote. And that's what Burr represented to, to yeah. them. And to Hamilton was a whole other thing with extracting from the bottom up. And yeah, we're going to take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors here. And when we come back, um, I want to get to talking about the Second Whiskey Rebellion. Foods USA is a farm-to-table online butcher and founding sponsor of Heritage Radio Network. Patrick Martins founded Heritage Foods USA in 2002 to save endangered species of livestock from extinction. 
He learned about the plight of endangered foods while working for Slow Food, a nonprofit started in 1986 in Italy when the first McDonald's opened on the Spanish steppes of Rome. To counter the homogenizing effects of fast food, Slow Food was formed to bring attention to regional cuisines and ingredients. By 2000, Patrick was the president of Slow Foods USA and working on adding heritage breeds to their arc of taste. But he decided to go further than a metaphorical arc and actually do something to preserve rare breeds. That was the moment that Heritage Foods' slogan, Eat Them to Save Them, was born. By creating a market for delicious meats from Heritage Breeds, we can ensure they'll be around for generations to come. Plus, Heritage Breeds just tastes a whole lot better. Learn more at HeritageFoodsUSA.com and use the code HERITAGERADIO for two free pork chops with your first order, brother. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. Uh, that was a wonderful ad for our friends there at Heritage Foods. Uh, definitely check them out uh, if you haven't. They have uh, excellent meat, and we're getting getting close to, or I guess getting fully into grilling season, so I definitely would recommend that you uh, check them out. Today, uh, I'm very pleased to have in the studio with me artist and activist and teacher Jim Costanzo, who's the founder of the Aaron Burr Society and uh, the Second Whiskey Rebellion. So before the break, we were talking a little bit about the politics of the early 19th century, late 18th century uh, in America and what caused Burr and Hamilton to have their famous duel. Um, but what I want to really what I want to really get to um, is the Second Whiskey Rebellion. And uh, Jim and the Aaron Burr Society launched the Second Whiskey Rebellion on February 6th, 2010. Uh, so the, whis- the Second Whiskey Rebellion has now been going on for seven years, and uh, it was the 254th anniversary of Aaron Burr's birth. So, Jim, can you tell us about the Second Whiskey Rebellion and uh, you know what, what it stands for, why we should all be rebelling? Well, after I started um, the Aaron Burr Society, and I was involved with the bank thing, and I did the free money movement. I in 2010 I launched the Second Whiskey Rebellion because I started read you know I was reading a lot of history I always loved history I was with Repo History and all that but you know and I kind of vaguely heard about the Whiskey Rebellion and then I started reading about that and doing some research into it and it was really fascinating and so I went out to Pittsburgh where it actually happened to a little town called Washington Pennsylvania was actually the center of it and um, I was doing a residency at Carnegie Mellon. Um, kind of semi-official, I don't know, wasn't part of a regular program, but I'd spoken there a couple of years before, and I told them I was coming out to do research, and they were very kind to me. And so I um, I stopped in Washington, Pennsylvania, and I started, and I, you know, I was on my way, and I was a little early, and I spent a couple hours in the Historical Society, and the, one of the women that worked there said, well, you should read this, because the Whiskey Rebellion was more than just about whiskey. It was about the Constitution and about the economy. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. So when I got to uh, Pittsburgh, I, uh, I, w- I went to the Carnegie Library and I went through the Pittsburgh Gazette with John Skull, who's one of my heroes. Uh, John Skull was the printer, editor, publisher, you know, he was like Ben Franklin. Right. And at times he was as eloquent as Jefferson or any one of that age. And um, he was also part of the Whiskey Rebellion. So I started right as uh, right before Washington took office. And I just read up through the whole Whiskey Rebellion. And that was from 1791 to 1794. And it was a weekly, sometimes not even that. And what I found out was that 
and this, I knew some of this beforehand, but what happened was they were living out in the frontier. Right. It was Western Pennsylvania at that point. I mean, we're talking Daniel Boone times. We're talking about there were very few Western, I guess, settlements that were any further West than that. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the Europeans had come, they'd come to the East coast of the United States. They were kind of pushing their way West towards the Mississippi and beyond. But at that point in the late 18th century, that was the frontier. We think of the frontier as being cowboys and with giant and the great plains and all that, but that stuff came later into the 19th century. So. But they did the same thing. What they did was they took land from Native people and gave it to the yep. soldiers yep. as part of their pay because then they could also vote. Because if you if you were 16 years old, you joined the, the revolution, and you went all the way through it and you went home to your father's farm, you couldn't vote. Right. So, and, you know, the Native American, the slavery aspect, they're all tied to this on different levels. Yep. And Burr was against slavery, which... Jefferson hated him for, and he was also uh, believed that Native Americans had rights, which was, like, freaky at that time. Well, I mean, it's still freaky now, right? (laughs) Unfortunately. please, yes. Unfortunately, that's very, very true. But the ideas that were happening there, they had land, you know, and they cleared it. And this happened in Winchay's Rebellion, too, because the the soldiers, whoever got the land, would clear it, and that would increase its value. It was no sure. longer a frontier woodland thing. Yep. It was already cultivated. Uh, but they couldn't afford to pay taxes. And that was happened in Shays' Rebellion. There were five armed rebellions against the United States government after the Revolution. Five. And the Whiskey well, Rebellion— it makes sense. They were all military men, right? I mean, they, had, they, they got the land— because they served in the military, so they knew about arms. I mean, that's where all that stuff comes And it was in, being right? foreclosed. It was taken away from them from yeah. no fault of their own. Right. Uh, foreclosure was a big part of the 2008 crash, too, let's remember. So what happened was they were out there, and, you know, they could grow crops, but there was no way of getting it east because they couldn't sell them there because everybody was a farmer. Yep. To sell the, they could make a little bit of profit or no profit from selling it out east because transportation took all the cost. Right. And, but if they processed the grains and made whiskey out of it, they were doing quite well. Sure. The shelf life was much longer, and the value went way up. Instead right. of having to ship hundreds of pounds of grain, you shipped a barrel of whiskey that had more value, in fact, than hundreds of pounds of grain. Mice didn't drink the whiskey. Yes, right. <laughs> exactly. So with all of those things together. And you have to remember, too, that the Ohio River, you couldn't get to New Orleans, the only right. place people would buy it, because the Spanish had closed that off. Yep. So the rivers were not really commerce. You couldn't really do commerce on them as they, you can now, or even after the Louisiana Purchase. So they started making their whiskey, and it was, you know, they were doing okay. They were autonomous. They had economic stability, which is a big part of what the Aaron Burr Society is about, local economic autonomy. We'll get to that later. But then what happened is Hamilton started passing all these laws, and they were economic. You know, he pushed them through the Congress, and Washington, Burr hated Washington. They hated each other. And I think that's one of the – I don't totally agree with him on that. Washington had his army starved in Valley Forge and never got money from Congress to – during the war, and so he was willing to let Hamilton do what he did. I don't know. I don't want to be too Washington. Nobody, none of them were perfect. Burr was not perfect by any sure. stretch. But the idea of That's Hamil- a human trait, right? None of us. Absolutely. <laughs> <It's perfect>. Absolutely. <laughs> and so 
Hamilton divided great system was basically the British system of capitalism extracting from the bottom up, which is basically what they rebelled against. And Jefferson got it, and Jefferson supported the Whiskey Rebellion, though he was in Paris, and so did Burr from the Senate. But what happened was that, you know, you, if you had a 10-gallon still, you paid the same tax if you were a farmer out in Pennsylvania or if you owned a plantation like Washington did, and Washington had his own distillery. He can run it six, seven days a week. He was polite. He wouldn't work people seven days a week, 15 hours a day. Washington wasn't, but that was not unusual. Sure. And so how, you could, how could you pay a tax if you could light your still up once every week, two weeks, you're lucky. You had a right. chop wood. Farms back then were like this enormous amount of work. Well, and, and, and we have this sort of history in this country, I think, of this idea of self-sufficiency. And, and the farms are a big part of that. I mean, there's, a, there's, mm-hmm. there's much, much later as you get, I think, into the 19th century and even the early 20th century, the idea that people are self-sufficient on farms, that they are able to fix their own machinery or make their own, you know, build, build your own barn, have a barn raising. Those kinds of things is an ideal, I think, that sort of made it into the American psyche. But what you're talking about is that the government views it all the same. Uh, they viewed the, the still the same yep. and tax it the same, but they were all dependent on mutual aid back then. Every farmer, when you talk about a barn raising, the, sure. the, the idea of mutual aid, the idea of community is very different than what you have of a community in the suburbs. Yep. And I think you already meant, you, you did, I want to just say it yeah. out loud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, they started doing well, then the tax came, and there were all these other things going on. And you know, there was John Skull wrote an editorial before Washington took office, uh, and I, I should have brought it. It's a beautiful thing, but he says, you will not now, nor will you ever, have a chance to express yourself equally under the Constitution. And Like I said, it, the Constitution was minority rule. Yep. It was set up that way. It still exists that way. Therefore, we have billionaires buying elections. Supreme Court's gives corporations the right of people. So, you know, and so they were not happy from from the Constitution. And the Constitution was very problematic. Byrd did not support it either. Um, because and the, the Bill of Rights were the last-minute addition so they could get it passed. Right. I mean, because the, the Constitution sets up this system that is, as Madison put it in Federalist Letter Number 10, you know, things like debt relief or equal property, distributing of land, which he wrote, This is, and I, I don't have that quote with me either, but he wrote about this in Federalist Paper Number 10. People can go up and look it up. And it was, to, it, it was the minority of the people, of the creditors, I would put it that way, a minority of the creditors. That was his minority protection. That was uh, Madison, who's credited with writing the Constitution. Right. So uh, Hamilton was a big part of that, too. So the idea of there was already discontent, and that was also, when you talk about Western Pennsylvania, that was Tennessee back then, too. Yeah. So it was all one big thing. And then when the tax came, it just took away their money, and they started, they couldn't pay their taxes, and they lost their land. That was like, what, five years of working, an unbelievable amount of work to cut the trees down, to plot. So they put a lot of energy into getting this going, and then it was being taken away from them. And so they just rebelled. They stopped. They didn't pay the tax. And it took four years before Washington moved on it. He 
brought an army together of 12,995 soldiers, larger than his army during the revolution. And they formed, they were all militias from the states, they formed in eastern Pennsylvania, and Washington went out there to meet them. And the rebels heard about it, and they surrendered. They said, okay, well, a lot of it fought under Washington. Right. They didn't want to fight. Uh, they just didn't want to pay that tax. And so now, like, conservatives are anti-tax and all this stuff. But that's for corporations. It's not for people, right? So it's it, it's... History gets convoluted on many levels. And so Washington went back to Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, which was the, uh, the capital back then. And General Lighthorse Lee, who was Robert E. Lee's father, led the army. Hamilton was in, in the group. He was part of it. But he didn't lead the army. He, he, you know, he was a, a clerk for yeah. Washington, basically. So, you know, and they got there. And when they got there... John Skull's name disappeared from the masthead for about six weeks, two months. And I kept going, and then I found it. And he wrote this most incredibly beautiful editorial about what the Whiskey Rebellion meant. And he talked about... Um, they were, he was a deist. Most of them were deists. They weren't religious. But they used the idea of God and the devil as a metaphor. And he talked about, you know... Our rebellion was from God. It was about equality and justice. And um, we were fighting against licentiousness, <laughs> evil. And he was yeah. describing Hamilton, yeah. you know, the devil. So what does the, what does the second – so the Whiskey Rebellion lasted four years. Um, and then, you know, giant army showed up. And the farmer said, no, we don't want to fight. Right. Fine. Um, so fast forward – now to 2010 with the starting of the second whiskey rebellion Mm -hmm. what is the you know what is what is the goal of the second whiskey rebellion how can people take part what can you know and what are what are we trying to accomplish with it well um, it's about raising awareness and it's about local production and i think you know this is what this station is about sure uh it's a everything that happens around here and just in support of those kind of things and this was you know i started in 2010 i started distilling whiskey i bought this strange little uh still online and uh i started distilling applejack because applejack historically was one of the more important whiskeys because it was they needed apple cider to survive they Native yep. Americans knew how to drink the water, but the <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't blame them for not telling the settlers. So let me tell you, uh, they they were burned after Thanksgiving, and yeah. they got it right. Yeah. So it was really interesting because, you know, I it, it was fun because I started figuring out how to distill, and I, you know, and I was very afraid of things blowing up and poisoning myself. But I you seal the stills with wheat paste. So the wheat paste is going to explode, before, you know, it'll pop yeah, off before yeah. there's anything going on, and then you turn off the heat. And uh, the, and really, I mean, people used to poison themselves, so they would use car radiators to <laughs> cool the uh, the whiskey as it came out. Or that would be their pipe coming out of the still. That's not good. Obviously, that's not good. But, I mean, the first 250 milliliters, it's not poisonous, but it's really strange tasting and the kind of... Very harsh. Yeah. You know, you just take that and you either throw that back into the next batch or, you know, throw it down the sink or whatever. And so I started playing with it and I started, I didn't want to add sugar at first. And I love the champagne yeast that uh, I bought at Brooklyn Kitchen. That was uh, very important. Uh, You guys gave me a lot of uh, 
information and we'll talk yeah. about a lot talk through a I lot think, of things. I think for me the the important thing <clears throat> for for listeners to understand is that um, you know, we we feel like we live in a free country, um, but there are still things that you can't do according to the government. So you can, thanks to Jimmy Carter, make your own beer in all 50 states. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's totally legal. You can you can make sort of low alcohol, low alcohol beverages. You can ferment your own wine at home, although most people don't. Um, wine is a little bit more complicated to make actually taste good than right. beer or cider. Cider is very easy. Mm-hmm. Um, you can take the sweet apple cider. You can buy, you know, preferably from a farm or at the farmer's market. You know, you could use apple juice from the grocery store, but I'd recommend you don't. Um, and you can ferment that into an alcoholic beverage. Mm-hmm. And by doing those things, you know, whether people recognize it or not, it is somewhat of a subversive, subversive act because there is a lot of tax revenue that's collected on the production of alcohol in this country. There was actually a lot more of it before prohibition and all that got shifted to income taxes Mm -hmm. in order for the uh, teetotalers to be able to pass prohibition because the government, when it was first presented, said, well, we're not going to have any operating budget if you get rid of alcohol production because we collect so much tax. So they created this idea, oh, well, let's have an income tax Mm -hmm. instead and we'll get rid of that. But when prohibition ended, taxing, taxing returned, taxation returned onto the production of alcohol. But distilled spirits are still illegal to make yourself at home. That's why the back... I, and I also, I made... I'm an artist, and I made letterpress uh, labels, and I got these really cool-looking, old-fashioned bottles. Yep. And the front of the label says, you know, Second Whiskey Rebellion, Aaron Burr Society, uh, unlicensed, illegal. Then the back of it says, um, Armada... Or the, first, it says, the, the labels are printed on hemp. So our motto was, drink the whiskey, smoke the label, recycle the bottle. <laughs> but it's about local. Yep. It's about being local. It's about being outside and of the corporate. Self-sufficiency. outside of the corporate economy, which is a really big thing. And it's something that we've, we've lost. I mean, I, like I said earlier, I think the idea of self-sufficiency is something that uh, – most people, no matter which side of the political spectrum you fall on, would probably agree is something we pride ourselves in America. Mm-hmm. We pride ourselves on this idea of self-sufficiency. I mean, I, you know, it, the the rhetoric about bringing jobs back to America actually comes, I think, to a certain extent from that idea of self-sufficiency. I can't fault the self-sufficiency part of it. We have a lot of resources in this country. Mm-hmm. We have a big labor force. Whether they want to work or not is up for debate. Um, and, and whether things like industry can prosper here, it really depends on the, the political climate and a number of other things. But this idea of self-sufficiency, I think, is really here. But as technology has progressed and as the economy has progressed and as people have been told that they need things like supercomputers in their pockets and they need cool new sneakers and all these other things, we've lost this ability to be self-sufficient. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, the the number of people we, we tailor, my, my wife and business partner, and I talk a lot about the idea that, you know, most people now don't learn home economics. They don't know how to sew a button. They don't know how to, you know, repair uh, a, a rip in a shirt. They don't know how to change a tire. They don't know how to change the oil in their car. I mean, all of these things, which in previous generations people knew how to do. I, you know, I, I read all of the Little House in the Prairie books with my daughter, and you know, in those books, they're living at, at what that point, you know, fast forward end of the 19th century, is the frontier in North Dakota. There's, you know, you can't go to the store and buy a new, you know, you can't go to the store and buy a new dress. Ma goes and buys fabric. She didn't have to weave her own fabric, but goes and buys the fabric and makes it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't know anyone 
currently. I mean, I could probably count on one hand the number of people I know who could make a piece of clothing. I, I know two women who are uh, making their own shoes. Not all, they don't wear them all the time, but they're making <laughs> shoes. Uh, Mina and Nat, give a shout out. But when you, when you say self sufficiency, let's not forget mutual aid. Sure. Because this was a collect, these were, I mean, no, I mean, the frontiersmen that were trappers went out into the wilderness by themselves, but everyone else depended on each other. Or the cavalry. Well, they depended on the human, government. I mean, that's an ancient human trait. I mean, the communal oven. Yes. Right? I mean, and I'm sure that the stills were used that way as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the idea that every farmer, even even then, even if you were making it yourself, the still must have been expensive mm-hmm. to own. Yes. So in a community, I can't imagine that every farmer had one. There were probably a couple, and they mm-hmm. probably lent them to each other. And the same thing still happens in rural communities today because farming is hard yeah. <laughs> and expensive. And if you have a tractor or a harvester or a combine, you're going to lend it to your neighbors or you're going to – Trade with them, right? Mutual trade. aid. Yes, you're you're going to go and help them, you know, bring in their wheat, and they're going to come and help you slaughter your animals when it's time, or whatever that trade is. Yeah, because we, yeah, we're humans are communal. Yep. I mean, so are animals. We, we come from some. I don't know what you want to believe, but the idea of communal help is instilled in all animals yep. and in humans. But one of the things that you you brought up is like when I was with Occupy. The idea of economic independence is, was so important. I was part of the alternative banking group for a while, also occupied museums. And then uh, I was with this group called Strike Debt and the Rolling Jubilee. Uh, and they were about, well, fighting debt, of course, yep. and the idea of what debt was. And we had David Graeber, who wrote 5,000 Years of Debt. Uh, we also had some other incredible people that were a part of it. And... Um, the idea of what debt means, you know, it's not getting rid of all debt because as, as neighbors, we have a debt to each other, right? So there's different kinds of debt. The idea of where debt comes from, is slave, and slavery is based on it. If someone came in and didn't, you know, when they conquered your land and didn't kill you, then you were their slave. Your debt, you owe them a debt of gratitude. And there's, right. <laughs> you know, there's so many different ways. But yeah. now you can't live without debt. We are in a society, we have allowed our society, and yes, some people can live without debt. But if you kind of want to live... Anthony Bourdain, actually, in an interview I read recently, it was really interesting, talked about how he worked for years and years to get out, and that that, is his, that was his one like life goal, was to be able to live debt-free and not mm-hmm. owe anything to anybody. And he did it. Yeah. But that that was his whole, his whole thing. I thought that was interesting. So we're... we're, we're pretty much out of time, but I want to I want to make sure that everybody gets the they can find out more at Aaron Burr Society dot org. And I want to, you know, if everybody listening does one thing after hearing about this in relationship to the Aaron Burr Society or the Second Whiskey Rebellion, Jim, what what is that? What should everybody, you know, if people if people have one takeaway, what can they do to be a part of this? Uh, the one takeaway would be this, when you start hanging out with your friends start talking about what a risk, the risk of your rebellion was about. What, what does local economical autonomy mean? What does it mean to have to be independent? But what, does, what is the relationship of that and mutual aid? Because you cannot be autonomous without mutual aid. Great. I think that I mean, we could go on for hours talking about this, and we will because we're friends outside, outside of this studio. Um, but unfortunately, the show has to come to an end. Thank you so much, Jim, for, for joining me today. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun and very interesting. 
Thank you, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears today. And please check out AaronBurrSociety.org and join the Second Whiskey Rebellion, whether you make your own shoes or grow your own salad or end up making your own whiskey. Uh, you know, perhaps if enough people are making their own whiskey, we can all get together and have a tasting, right? I mean, there's got to be some fun here, too. A uh, big thank you to David Tatashore, who engineers this show on Wednesdays. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at HeritageRadioNetwork.org and on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can follow me on Instagram at the Foodballer. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.